0: So many women in the early days told me they felt like they were in the closet with their values, and they were afraid to come out for the social conflict and for the economic consequences. I mean, lots of women said, if everybody knew how I felt, they wouldn't use my husband's construction business, or they wouldn't use our auto body shop, right? They're so afraid to to come out. So how can we counter that fear by creating belonging and community? That's going to be super important to be willing to talk to your girlfriends and say, hey, listen, I'm not going along with this, you know, and that is what we have to build up to save America. Hello,
1: this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight? My guest today, Jackie Payne, is the founder of Galvanize USA and Galvanize Action. Those are nonprofit civic empowerment programs which support more women to vote their values. Jackie is a lawyer with 20 years' experience working to advance gender and racial justice including work at now legal defense and education fund and Planned Parenthood's 50 state advocacy program following the 2016 election Jackie worked to understand the women voters who occupy a pivotal position in our country right now through 18 months of deep listening and then built Calvinize out of those learnings I enjoyed hearing Jackie's story and learning about what her organizations do I think you will too So first, my sponsor, then my interview with Jackie Payne of Galvanize. Launching a campaign? Change Digital launches campaign websites in as little as 72 hours, using our templates built with your goals in mind. Choose your template, submit website content, and we'll take care of the rest. You'll also get social and email templates that are easy to use and match your website's look and feel. For less than $1,800, launch your campaign with a professional digital presence starting on day one. Visit changedigital.us to learn more and get started. Jackie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. First, let me just say, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm Jackie Payne. I'm the founder and executive director of Galvanize USA and Galvanize Action. Both of those organizations are working towards the same vision. It's an America that has a robust and healthy democracy and one in which everybody, white, black and brown can thrive. So that's what I'm doing these days. My whole uh, professional career, I've been working to advance gender, racial, and economic justice. That started out in Johannesburg, South Africa. I was working there in 95, so just post-apartheid. I got to help work on um, the gender provisions of the new constitution. So that was a pretty mind-blowing experience, really transformative. And then I came back to the States and was a legal aid lawyer on the west side of Chicago for a hot minute before I moved to D.C. and spent about 15 years there doing policy, trying to advance progress that way. And then when Trump was elected in 2016, I'd been spending a few years doing movement building among women's organizations. In 2016, I was with a majority women of color organization, and we were all really just taken back by the fact that Uh, the majority of white women who voted, voted for Trump. It wasn't that he was a Republican, that's been happening for ages, but that he was someone who told us he was gonna be racist and misogynistic and anti-immigrant. And that really just felt like a, a moment. It was a galvanizing moment for me and for my friends and colleagues who were like, go get your cousins, like what is happening here? And really at that point, I looked to see who was doing that, who was going to organize a moderate white women for progress. And there really wasn't anybody out there who was doing it on a long-term basis. You know, campaigns would come up and do it cyclically. You'd hear about soccer moms or mama bears every couple of years, but nobody was really doing that work day in and day out. And, um, so that's when I started Galvanize.
1: And you are one of kind of a pretty sizable cohort of people who started organizations around the same time for similar reasons i think in lots of different niches a lot of whom i've interviewed and so I'm really happy to have a chance to talk to you now i think you really uh fit into what what a lot of people are trying to do save this country from forces that are pretty scary and what they want to do um i, I guess i want to just talk a little bit more about that biography before we get into Galvanize. There seems like there's a through line of an interest in women and their place in society that goes back a long ways. Where's that coming from aside from the obvious? Does that come from family? Does that come from education? What's the source of that?
0: I didn't expect to go here, but let's do it. You know, I grew up feeling pretty empowered myself I felt um, like I could do anything when I went to college I was raped and I for the first time had this experience of having something happen to me because of of my class because I was a woman I had this it was a really shook me and this awakening of you know the world isn't totally, you know, fair. I mean, I knew that, but it, like I had this awareness of being a class of people for, to whom things happen to. And as a, you know, middle-class white girl, that really was the first time that happened. So that kind of woke me up at that time. And that was probably my fr- first galvanizing moment where I became more interested in gender equity and started to understand that and look into it and learn more about and study it. And then um, that definitely became uh, my path.
1: You know, sometimes when I ask a question like that and I get an answer like that, it knocks me back in my seat a little bit as that did. I've had a lot of friends who have a similar story, female friends, and I have two daughters. And so it's, it's hair raising to think of the risk that people go through in life that I haven't really spent a day thinking about on my own account. I assume everybody responds to that in a different way. Some people respond to trauma with some kind of resilience and it doesn't hit them as hard or takes longer time to manifest. And other people, uh, you know, it's, it's far worse and kind of tracks them through life or depresses them. And I'm just kind of curious since you brought it up, like how, how did you deal with that? And how do you deal with that?
0: Yeah. You know, it actually, um, Absolutely informs what I'm doing today in terms of group support. Like, So I think the first thing I did was I went to group therapy. So I got to see that like it wasn't my fault and other people had gone through it. The next thing I did was try to get my own power back and figure that out. And so I became a campus acquaintance rape education person. I would go into fraternities and talk to men, meet them where they were and say, like, Uh, you know, I'm sure this isn't your intention, but when you go into this party tonight, like, let me wake you up to how you need to behave. And so that was a way of reclaiming my power, but also, you know, it kind of, um, set me on a path to, um, just sort of understand, like, this happens to so many folks. We can't say like, these people are all monsters. How do you sort of work through what's happening socially? What what are we being taught that this is okay, and that you can do this, and that you can disregard what women say, or that women are taught not to say what they want, and, and not even maybe sometimes to know what they want. So like, how do we um, look at the systemic factors around something like that and start to break that down. So I started that with, you know, campus acquaintance rape education. And then throughout my life, I'm really looking at what is going on structurally and systemically and how do we understand that? And then how do we find the opportunity to improve the situation?
1: Did that play into the decision to go to law school at all? No,
0: I was always going to law school. I didn't know any lawyers growing up, but I thought that that would be, I was very motivated by racial justice as a child. And I thought that I would go and, you know, be a Supreme Court justice or something and deal with equity that way. Um, So I was always planning to go to law school. It did make me, uh, you know, I was definitely galvanized around that issue in law school.
1: And galvanized, definitely a word for you.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Word of the day. (sighs) Uh,
1: Did you enjoy law school? What was the part of law that you focused on?
0: Oh my God, I loved law school. I went to University of Michigan, um, go blue. And I was there um, in 94, 95 and 96. And it was an amazing time to be there. We were really, you know, at that time, even grappling with racial justice um, within the school, within the teachings. And I studied mostly like constitutional law. 14th amendment was my favorite class,
1: so. I think, Constitutional law is just, it just feels like it trumps all other laws in, in kind of just an intellectual interest as well as sort of literally. So then you, you seem to go into the, as you mentioned, now and Planned Parenthood and women's groups like that. What did you learn in those first years as a young lawyer?
0: Um Well, as a legal aid lawyer in Chicago, what I saw was that the law was setting folks up and trapping them in poverty. And I could go to court time and again, but folks were, the system was set up against them. And so that's really what made me want to go to D.C. and try to see, you know, and the hubris of youth, like, well, then I'll change the laws. I was the first policy attorney at now legal defense. And I worked on the welfare reform bill there to try to offer a more progressive alternative to what was being put into law at the time where I saw especially single mothers being punished for choosing to have children. And, you know, quite a bit of that law is actually about punishing motherhood, which is pretty striking when you read it. And really, uh, the policy is punishing women for like, if they had a man in the house, you would get docked because you're not, if you had a man in the house, then he should be helping to support you. So really banana stuff. I was looking for ways to lift that up, even among Other advocates for economic justice who didn't bring that gender lens into the space, and to say, like, look how this is being crafted, look at this is the impact. And so I worked with women who were on welfare to organize to bring them and their stories to Congress and to talk with them. I I gathered women. Um, in conversation about what the law said, what, how asked about how it would impact them, talked to them about what they would want, and really brought that into the way that we crafted our legislation. And did the same thing with the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization, really trying to have directly impacted folks inform the legislative process.
1: Did that have any impact uh, on the actual legislation?
0: Not on welfare reform. I worked with uh, Paul Wellstone and Patsy Mink on that bill. They were using it as a, a marker, right, to show this is how the law should be. This is, And so we used it as a device to hold up a mirror to what was happening and show what the impact was and how we thought it should be. And that was a very righteous place to be, to get to stand up there and say how it should be. But it was also a little bit of a lesson around, do you want to be righteous or do you want to have impact? Right. And so um, uh, Paul Wollstone and Patsy Mink passed away within a month of each other when we were doing that work. So it was pretty devastating for me to lose those two folks. And actually that's when I, shortly thereafter, I left um, that work and went to Planned Parenthood and started working with them on um, moving from reproductive rights to more of a reproductive justice
1: frame. How was that as a place to work?
0: It was interesting. It's a very powerful place. You know, I learned so much. I definitely got schooled in things I'd never been introduced to before, like what a C4 was, how a political shop runs, um, when you have resources, what's possible. All of that was great. I found the staff amazing, very committed, passionate, hard workers. You know, we definitely worked long, long days. Um, One of the things that was hard was it was a lot of defense, we were just constantly defending against attacks. And so all of the dreams of advancing more reproductive justice, supporting women in their motherhood, it was hard to find any time to do that because we were just trying to defend the, the ground we had. And clearly, you know, as you can see in the Supreme Court these days, like it's, that is still very much happening.
1: It's just an ongoing battle. It, it's, uh, I, I'm actually reading a book right now. I don't know if you've run across it called Jesus and John Wayne how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. And it's fascinating because as many times as I've read surveys of American history from different lenses, whether labor history or what you get in school, um, this one is from the lens of the development of the evangelical movement and how much it is about an old style of masculinity and how much built a really reactionary view of womanhood into that church and into the Republican Party and conservative movement, and how many people have adopted that or let that reinforce their views about marriage and about their relationship to the state. And it's just so different than the world I grew up in and exist in right now.
0: Yeah. I haven't read that book. There's another book. I'm trying to remember who wrote it. That was about, um, the role of how mainstream religions and evangelical religions, like how they uh, promote racism. And so it's really about white dominant culture. So it's both the patriarchy and then
1: this, this book has that, has the racial strain to it too. It's just, they're intertwined as we can see. And it's really interesting how Trump just, reflects and manifests this stream that has come back from the 1910s and 20s and, and on to today. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. So quite fascinating. Certainly Planned Parenthood is on the opposite side of, of that worldview. What made you leave there and what'd you do next?
0: Uh, that was probably 2009. And I was... Thinking, I'd love to have a baby, but I can't do it if I'm working this hard, you know, million hour days at Plant Parenthood. So I was thinking partially about that. Obama came into office, so I felt like it was a good time to shift. And I um, was really thinking about what would be needed next. And I was thinking about the domestic and sexual violence agencies, how they have this amazing opportunity that they're in every single county in the United States of America. Really, in in rural America, every single county has been supported with domestic violence agencies, and they're mostly receiving folks who've already been hurt, right? So there's not a lot of power building. There's not a lot of um, not just prevention, but really social change happening. And yet they're there and trusted and connected to communities all across America. So I thought there was a real opportunity there to have folks add to their repertoire in addition to providing services, deepen their work in community to create social change. So Jen and Peter Buffett um, supported me to um, design and build um, Move 10 Violence, and that was an organization that was really lifting up from across the country who were the most innovative, um, practitioners currently in the field, how can we bring them together and work together to think about building power to create more change?
1: Did, did you fund these organizations or or just bring them together? What was the yeah, nitty gritty of what you did? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, as is my way, like the, I had my own ideas about what might be needed. And then I spent um, months and months research, like interviewing folks and asking them what did they think they most needed and then designed a program that we collectively thought would help move us as a movement to doing more social change. So it had like leadership development. It had a lot of work around even imagining what the world could be like in the future with an end to violence, organizational support, grants, et cetera.
1: And were you concurrently at at another group uh, at the same time?
0: Uh, I was placed at um, the Raven Group. Yes. Um, so that's where I did the work from. Yeah.
1: I see. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out from your LinkedIn. What? What was happening there? So, and what is the Rabin Group?
0: It's like a um, consulting firm in DC. Robert Rabin's uh, an amazing guy. Has uh, done a lot of work for civil rights throughout the years, and he kind of over time has just adopted people who needed a home base to do their work from.
1: Oh, that's that's great. So, what's the founding story for Galvanize Action and Galvanize USA?
0: Yeah, well, when my friends were like, go get your cousins. um, I thought, all right, what is this going to be like, you know, and I thought, I'm probably well suited to do it because I am from the Midwest. I grew up in Illinois. I spent my summers in Wisconsin. I went to school in Michigan. These are literally are my cousins. Um, And so who better than me to look into this if it's not already happening? But what I didn't want to do is make any assumptions about who these folks were or what was going on for them. I really did not like how people, everyone was saying they were voting against their interests. I hate that phrase. I spent you know, years of my life saying, trust women, believe them, they'll make the right choice for them. I wasn't going to then turn around and say, except when it comes to this. Here, don't trust them. They're not making the right choice. Um, so I didn't like that phrase. And I also really didn't like how reductive folks were being about who these voters were and what was going on for them. So I thought, let me um, go and sit with them and listen. So for the first year, I went around to community listening sessions, often hosted by domestic violence agencies in rural and small towns. I followed that up with uh, more formal focus groups and then uh, surveys to really understand who are these women and where is the opportunity? And the striking thing in those conversations was how many women, and these are women who are registered and who do vote, how many of them said they hate politics, they think it's just inevitably will lead to conflict, and 74% of them said they try to avoid talking about politics at all costs. They want to avoid it. They're surrounded. These are like more red and purple um, communities, um, their husbands tend to be more conservative than they are, as do their fathers and fathers-in-law, sometimes their pastors. So they talked a lot about feeling like even in their own home, like they knew how they felt. They tended to have the same kind of vision for America that I did. They wanted their kids to have full bellies. They wanted them to be in good good schools. you know they wanted they want everybody to have health care. They don't know exactly how it should work, but they definitely think everyone should have health care, right? So they had this desire for America, but they would say like, you have to be really smart when you vote. I've been disengaged. I'm not paying attention. I'm, I'm stepping back from talking about it because it's always leads to a fight. So I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm out of it a little bit. A third of them said they don't feel like they know anyone who shares their values, including their husbands sometimes. And then what we saw was because they were disengaging a little, they, they weren't sure they knew enough or they were knew what the right answer was. They knew how they felt, but they don't think you should vote based on feelings. They weren't sure they knew enough to be smart enough to get it right. And so 49% of the moms said, I'm afraid of looking stupid if I talk about politics. And 54% of the women overall in our audience were said, um, I feel like I can't express or defend my point of view because everyone they were talking to was coming at them. And this mostly men who were who were leaning into politics, who are watching Fox News or listening to the radio, maybe at work, um, right, or in the shop or in the truck. And so they would come home with these facts, quote unquote. And so women would say like, I don't know, I'm not so sure. Like, um, he knows more than I do. And the men would say like, yeah, I know more than she does. And like, because the men were more paying attention to their set of facts. So increasingly, what we heard from women was like, I'm just not so sure. And when it comes down to it, I just want to back out of the whole mess. And I don't want to have a fight. And so they lost confidence in their own selves in like, were they sure how they should vote? And they tended to vote in a way that was in line with folks around them who said, this is the right way, right? And that's actually a very rational thing to do. If you're not sure you know enough about something, it's quite rational to look to people you trust and to follow that, We all do that in different parts of our lives. For a lot of the women I talked to, um, that's what was happening for them.
1: That's, that's really fascinating to hear. I think that, that some of the narrative that I absorbed was as a result of Trump, women were getting more involved. And I think there was a class of women that perhaps were that were becoming the activists. But it sounds like if you, if you talk to regular people in the places that you did, there's a little more reality there to to how to how people responded to that moment.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that's true. We saw folks joining indivisible. We saw people doing the women's March, right. So these are the folks that are just like a rung below that in terms of civic engagement. These are the folks who are they do like our intentionally our survey we the target audience shares this vision for America. They share these values but they just don't want to get involved. So that is really the interesting opportunity for us. What we did see was post-Trump, um, it became less comfortable for them to avoid politics. So pre-Trump, they were like, I, you know, I, Sunday dinner is going to be peaceful. We are not talking about politics. Like that's it. Post-Trump, they started to see, it became more uncomfortable. They started to see people in their lives saying things that they really did not like. So just staying silent didn't feel as good anymore. So now it was that moment of like, I hate the division. I don't like what's happening. I don't know what to do about it. I don't feel equipped to do something about it. I'm uncomfortable. And that discomfort was our opportunity because we were like, we feel similarly, come on in, let's work on this together.
1: So you spent that time kind of getting to know your target audience, what did you do next?
0: Yeah, um, I did user-centered design because I, you know, again, I had an idea about what would be great. I thought it'd be so great if we went into everybody's living rooms and have 10 people gather around and talk about what, what our vision for America and what we could do and how to do it. And the women who we researched said like, Uh, were you not listening to me? I just told you the worst thing I could do is go into someone's living room. I don't think anyone's going to agree with me when it comes around the circle and I have to talk. I'm going to feel stupid and I'm pretty sure it's going to end up in a fight and I don't want to get stuck in that living room. So they said, build us something online where we can go. And they only wanted women. I wasn't sure if they would. Because I thought they might want some men in there given how they were making decisions and but a lot of women were like, you know, you know how men are, let's just keep this for the women. So we created an online community with them. Um, and it really is a place, the offer was come on in for real talk without judgment. This is a space for you to make sense of what's happening in the world, to figure out what you think to test whether things are true, to build some capacity around identifying what is true and not true. And um, so we have lots of women saying things like, you know, my husband says this, I'm not sure it's true, and then someone else will come in and say, I'm an eighth grade history teacher, that's definitely not true, this is how it works. And then we have a whole thing around with all the inf- disinformation that folks are getting, we have a whole thing around like how do you identify what's a good source? Like when someone shares something, we limit bad sources from getting into the space, but We're able to say, like, this is, here's a map of how to know whether something is believable or not, whether it's a credible source, if it's biased. And then when folks ask questions, other folks in the group will, using those rules, will say, well, actually, I I looked it up and here's what I found. And there'll be a real discussion about different topics. Women have brought up every single hot topic in politics since we started it at the end of 2019. We don't bring it up. We let them bring it up because if we bring it up, it feels forced and they're uncomfortable. But within two weeks of any major incident, whether it's an impeachment or police violence, they're talking about it and trying to make sense of it together.
1: Tell me about how you built this space and what is it built on and, and how do you recruit people and the, the mechanics of that?
0: Yeah, we have about 100,000 people joined um, through, uh, we did, you know, acquisition on Facebook and elsewhere. Um, we have Facebook groups, um, national and state based. And then we also have texting groups. Um, and then we also have email, um, which it's interesting, you know, I find the email to be the least compelling, most broadcasty venue, but a, the number of our women that's they we, you know, we tried to move them. They're like, No, no, I'm good. I just want to read stuff. You know, so we've got some folks on email. It's kind of like, um, you know, Noom, that weight loss program, it's behavioral psych weight loss. We're kind of the Noom of civic empowerment. So we use a lot of behavioral psych to think about, given what these folks told us were their barriers to um, voting in line with what they say they want for the world, um, how do we use behavioral psych to really think about what do you need to do then to build up that sense of self, clarity about what you want? an understanding of what's happening in the world so you can vote in line with the way that you say you want to, and how do we really build up that sport? So it's a lot of political confidence, political agency, and then some tools around disinformation um, to be able to vet the stuff that is coming through.
1: It's geographically based?
0: Yeah, we have a national, and then we have state-based. So the states where we start, we started in the Rust Belt Midwest, so we started in Michigan, Wisconsin, um, Iowa, and then we also went into Maine because uh, we wanted to see what that region was like. And it's, it's such a high percentage of moderate, independent white folks that we thought we could learn a lot there. So we were in Maine as well.
1: So give me a sense of the Maine group. How did that come together? What sort of people joined it? What kind of things did they say?
0: Yeah. The interesting thing is because of who they are, politics is not what gets them up in the morning, right? They told us they don't even like it. They're afraid of it. So, what we offered them was a safe space to talk about and make sense of everything in their lives with basically a community of girlfriends. The agreement is it will not turn into conflict and we will be kind to one another, not nice, not polite. But kind, and that we'll have civic, civil discourse and disagreement, right? So, politics is a piece of it, but it's not the whole thing. Really, what they're coming into is a community of women. And so, they talk about um, how their hair is growing back after chemo. They talk about what to do at Christmas time because the budget is really tight. These are folks who most of them don't have a four year college degree. Um, most of them are, you know, at or under the uh, median income. They're struggling with kitchen
1: table issues. And you're targeting that particular, like in your acquisition, you're aiming at a particular type of of people politically. It sounds to me like you're not probably ending up with people on the far right. I mean, like you're picking deliberately who, but help me understand that.
0: Yeah, we're intentionally bringing together folks who are, we want to have moderate Republicans, independents, and moderate Dems, um, right? So that there is a range across partisanship. The folks we're targeting are folks in rural, small town, suburban America in these states who do uh, agree with this vision for America, right? They they click and sign into something that says, I want an America that works better for everybody, white, black, and brown on the front page. Um, mm-hmm. right. And they 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 don't have to agree with. You know everything I agree with, so
1: that's but- how you that's how you get the audience that you want. Do you ever have to oust people who don't fit or, or trolls or uh, how does that work?
0: the We have moderators in the group who are mostly social workers, therapists, and people who you know could have been that who are trained to engage with folks on a values-based um, engagement, to really ask questions, to create the conditions so folks can think about why they think something and kind of um, work through stuff together. So those moderators are there, in, especially in the early days, to help set the ground rules and make sure folks are engaging Well, the people who we've had to um, exclude are people who wouldn't uphold the community standards around civil civic discourse, right? So you can, we've had folks who support Trump in there, um, and it is a helpful thing for them to say what they do, what they think and why they think it. And no one is permitted to talk about disinformation. um, And so that gets shut down, but it's a way of creating the space to think about Um, what do we want for America? Is this your vision for America? Is that what you want? What will work best for you? And the important thing for me is that these voters really do, for the first time in a lot of cases, start to think about and make sense of, if this is what I want, how can I align my intention with my civic impact, with the vote I take in the world?
1: How does the participation shake out? Do you have like a bunch of people that are lurking and a few people that are talking or do you have mechanisms for trying to get everybody involved or what does that look like?
0: Yeah. Um, the the cool thing about it is we have really good engagement. I'm delighted by how folks are engaging. And there have been t- times where we're like, wow, but there are these lurkers. What are they doing? Um, should we get rid of them? You know, clean the list. We don't want to have vanity numbers. We're really trying to make sure that's the risk robust thing. But what we found was there are quite a number of women who say, I don't feel ready to talk yet. And we see this all the time. People saying, I just am ready. I'm just listening. Or it's like kind of like long-time listener, first-time caller. We get that a lot. People will be like, I've been here for a year. I now feel comfortable talking. I want to share this idea. And so many women saying, I don't have any space like this in my life. Some of them saying, um, one said like I changed how I voted in this last election and I've lost all my friends. And, you know, so, It's just about how do we create the space for them to start to build that confidence? And increasingly, given what's going on in the world, how do they become agents to protect our democracy? So no matter how they vote, how do they understand what is a lie and what is truth? How do they, as patriots, as Americans, say, I will not let this bill that's going to invalidate a fair election go by without doing anything about it. So they're not naturally activists in this arena but they are volunteers in their schools they they are you know very vibrant in their community so we're trying to build up before 2025 not only this confidence to vote in this way but also and against a lot of conflict and pressure but also to build up their willingness to stand up uh, against the erosion of democracy
1: what surprised you the most about what you've seen in these groups
0: I've fallen in love with these ladies. Um, And I think that's really important because people know if you're organizing them or for, you know, to some other means, or if you really care about them and see them. And what so many of these folks need is to feel seen and to feel safe so that they can act. Um, And, you know, I think there's tons of folks who would find this annoying, that I'm having to do this, that this is, um, you know, that I'm spending my time and resources on this. That I feel like, you know, there's ways in which this is a continuation of what we want to see in the world where folks are like stepping into their power and and really using their civic power to make this country better. I mean, so many women in the early days told me they felt like they were in the closet with their values and they were afraid to come out for the social conflict and for the economic consequences. I mean, lots of women said, if everybody knew how I felt, they wouldn't use my husband's construction business or they wouldn't use our auto body shop, right? They're so afraid to, to come out. So how can we Counter that fear by creating belonging and community and then doing behavioral like practice. So we do challenges, take a brave action this week and report back. And 80% of them took this action and reported back. And then one of the stragglers came back after and said, You know, I didn't do it. She texted two weeks later and said, I didn't do it, but then I saw what everyone else did and I did it. And like she's affirmatively texting us, right? And ultimately, that's going to be super important to be willing to talk to your girlfriends and say, Hey, listen, I'm not going along with this, you know, and that is what we have to build up to save America.
1: Can you generalize about the changes that you saw happening with these women?
0: With the willingness to come out of the shadows, the willingness to practice saying what you think when you haven't done that in this arena, again, I just want to say that these are confident, strong women in other areas. It's just this arena, One of the things that's remarkable is that they're super open-minded. And one of the things that they're proud of is that they can see both sides of something. It's why they tend to be in the middle. They're independent. They're not strongly affiliated with either party, which also is part of the problem. None of us really look, read all the bills and decide this is what I think on this bill. We default to what our group tells us. And they don't have a strong attachment to either party. So they don't have a group that's telling them what to think. So they're having to figure it out. And so that open-mindedness is also a beautiful thing. And there's so much opportunity there.
1: Do you think that the process moves them in a party direction over time?
0: I think in a country where the Republican Party is not participating as it once did, right, where it would offer a true other party that is offering ideological options for folks. You know, it's one thing to say, I'm I'm becoming nostalgia for decades ago, right? Me too. Uh, Right?
1: Yeah, I mean, we just have such a broken and corrupt and lying and dangerous Republican party right now, which it hasn't always been, uh, at least to the degree where they will try to overthrow an election type thing. So are you saying that because of the more functioning Democratic Party, they're moving that way?
0: I, I would say, especially in Gavanese USA, which is a you know nonpartisan thing, what I would say is we don't even measure who they're going to vote for in there. What we measure is, are they engaging? Are they reporting back that they took actions that from a psychological standpoint, will show an increase in agency? Do they ha- feel like they have more political knowledge? Are they taking a news quiz and saying, this is the dip- disinformation? That's what I'm measuring there. Galvanize action is where is a totally different story. Galvanize action, our mission is to move the margins on voters where it matters most for an election. Um, and I I have it that you know, really is a very separate organization because I want to protect the sanctity of what Galvanize USA is and what it really is doing for the members of that community to build up their civic empowerment. Galvanize Action, I can tell you, is all about finding exactly the right people in the counties where it matters, connecting with them and moving them. And I'm delighted to talk to you about that because that's where so much of our innovation and success has
1: happened. When you talk about having 100,000 women in a group, I'm, I'm a, kind of both wowed by the the size of that, and then I also compare it to the total number in the country, and it's so small because we really would love to be doing this with everybody in this category and in other categories, right? How do you think about like how you scaled up to this and how you could scale it up to an even greater degree?
0: Yeah, we're very research and science driven. So what I want to do is get it right as we go. Not perfect, but right. And I want to make sure I'm serving the women who join us. I didn't try to go faster than I thought we would be able to create transformation. So I think you have to move at the speed of trust, as an old mentor of mine would say. And so we were building up both the, the building blocks about if this is the barrier and what does psychology tell us are the proper... Interventions. How do we build that, create it, and then grow it? So this year, I think we'll. Our goal is to double it to two hundred thousand. We're going to expand into Pennsylvania and Ohio, and then potentially down into the Southwest. That would be a new area for us. Um, so we're starting to build that up, and it is. Governor's USA is majority white, but not exclusively by any means. So when we went into these rural, and small town communities, what we found was there. There, even if we were. Talk and you know, looking initially at the white women there, there were um, Latinas and Black women who are living in small towns. Who what we were offering really resonated with them, and so we have a, a multiracial community in galvanized USA. In galvanized Action, I as I'm going in, I'm targeting the moderate voters in these in these, especially in the Rust Belt. Um, it's almost exclusively white. Really, that's who I'm going after. Who who needs to? What margins do we need to move? You know, I actually, I want to just touch on the why of that, why white women. It's really twofold. One is because of the size of the white women voting block, and the second is where we live. So in terms of the size of the white women voting block, I honestly did not know this before I started Galvanize. In 2016, there were twice as many white women voters um, than all voters of color combined. And right now, white women represents 37% of the vote across the country. And in the states where we're working, they represent, each of the states where we're working, they they represent 43% of the vote. So you just can't have a majority of white women join a bigger majority of white men to vote for the status quo or worse, because that's why we're not making any progress, right, across any of the issues. Part of it is the scale. And It's anticipated that white women will be the largest voting bloc for um, decades to come. So that's the scale. And then the second part is where we live. And I know that the folks who listen to your podcast know a little bit about democracy. When America was created, we intentionally created structural bias in favor of less populous, more rural states. And so even as America is shifting and getting more and more diverse, And we think we'll probably have a majority people of color electorate by 2054. Even as that's happening, there's also a geographic concentration happening at the same time. So 70% of the population lives in just 16 states. And that's mostly along the coasts. I often talk about that as kind of the smile of America, which means that the other thirty percent of the population, which is mostly white and rural, controls sixty-eight Senate seats and is influencing in an outsized way the impact of both the Senate, the Supreme Court, and national elections. You know, it's it's why we can have Hillary Clinton um, win by three million popular votes but lose by seventy-eight thousand. It's why. Biden can win by over 7 million, but narrowly avoid an electoral tie in three states. It was less than 50,000 votes across three states, right? So we're having this problem where you can have more and more people um, believe that something should be true, but if we don't move the margins in these states that are disproportionately white and rural comparatively, we are not going to advance the progress we want to see. And, you know, we're seeing that right now in the Senate where Democrats barely got not the majority, but everything is being held up by Manchin, who has a 97% white electorate, right? Those folks and Joe Manchin are deciding whether we get paid family leave, whether we get child care tax credit. So it's absolutely essential that we do um, persuasion and turnout of voters of color, that we win that popular vote, that we're addressing voter suppression nationwide. But this other piece is of moving the margins on moderate white folks is critical to our mutual success.
1: Who have you found to be your best allies in the progressive ecosystem who are also trying to do this kind of work?
0: I'm going to answer that in two ways. First, let me say like where I've had the most trouble with folks is progressive white folks who are uncomfortable with my focus on white women.
1: I heard that in your previous answer. Yeah,
0: Yeah. (laughs) so right. So we've, you know, we've had to say like, So that's been a little bit of a struggle to say to folks like, I think it should be done both morally because we wanna build an America that works for everybody, but also practically the math is super clear. You need to do this to win. So we've had to overcome some resistance from folks on that, from funders, um, donors, but the folks who don't have any doubt about it are my friends of color. Like women of color are routinely saying to me like, thank God someone's doing this. Like it's about damn time.
1: Yeah, I talked to Katie Paris, who runs Red Wine and Blue. She does Suburban Women out of Ohio. Um, And I asked her a similar question. And she emphasized that suburbia is not just about white women. And when I've talked to a series of people who are working on the rural problem of late, they've also emphasized the changing nature of of race in rural america but you you're still seeing the crucial nature of this block of white women in these states
0: because you have to think about who also is um persuadable who is among those folks who is not you know firmly identified in a camp so we have both scale, the location, and rural America is increasingly folks of color, it's about 25%. Right? So you get 75% of the folks. And then of all those folks, who is not yet firmly entrenched in camp, who's open to persuasion? So um, again, it won't be exclusively white women, but that the numbers there are critical. And we can't, um, you know as a friend of mine says, they're too big to fail.
1: Yeah. Where have you found funding for this?
0: Pro-democracy groups have been supportive. Women's groups have been supportive. Increasingly, we're seeing racial justice groups understand the role that we play, how crucial it is. Um, I think a lot of the excitement about what we're doing comes from our proven success in 2020, but also our approach is so different from what other folks are doing Um, in, In governance action, all of our work is done at the intersection of neuroscience, behavioral psych and data science. So we have worked with these amazing neuroscientists at MindBridge Center, they have trained our whole staff in how the brain works. And what does it look like to work with the brain and how is the brain going to defend against your entreaties, right? So we know so much about how the brain works. There's all these academics, there's all this research, and I don't think political scientists are using it enough. I know the right is actually using it quite well, but I don't feel like the left has done a very good job of, um, you know, how do you understand universally how brains work to work with them. And then the second part is behavioral cycle. What will help somebody move, right? So- data i think we're getting better at um, but putting those all three together is really where we have shine so we learned about how the brain works how to work with it um, then we work with grow progress and they helped us um, map and identify everyone by their core values and then we have been so successful because we've created messages that are designed tailored for folks intentionally going straight to what matters most to them what are their core values and then using what we know about neuroscience to sidestep the defenses and be able to connect with them so they can actually hear us in all the noise.
1: So it it sounds like you're talking there about galvanized action. I've talked to so many people who have a C3 and a C4. I think that perhaps a lot of the people who listen to this quite understand that distinction. But in your case, what goes into the C4? Yeah.
0: So galvanized action, again, it's all about moving margins. So really what we're doing there is just tons and tons of research to understand our audience, to understand who is who do we see, perceive as uh, movable. Um, and then once we target them, we understand what their core values are with Grow Progress, do that modeling, then, um, and what motivates them, what language they use. Um, and then we design uh, persuasion messages that are intended to support them on what matters most to them, the kitchen table issues healthcare economy, COVID, and then inoculate against all of the grievance-based politics that the right is using. So last year, I spent um, a couple of months researching what are the right-wing narratives that our audience are seeing and believing. And that showed us that, um, you know, immigration, of course, was number one, the wall, right? And folks, our target audience has just been battered over the head with uh, anti-immigrant messages. And then the, another one was critical race theory. So we saw that coming early last year. We actually did a deep canvas, really a deep listening canvas in Wisconsin, where we called voters to talk to them about it. And we were we had our volunteers listening for what came up, how do people talk about it, what were the issues. So once we did all that research, we then um, spent all of last quarter in messages that are targeted to the movable folks on these core issues that are dragging them to the right. For each issue, who is movable? What are their values? um, Let's craft messages that are designed to connect with them. We had over a hundred persuasion messages that moved women statistically significantly. So we take those messages which our batting average is like kind of bananas. I love how amazing that is. I'm more delighted than anyone about how we try these messages and how well they're working. And so we've got all these messages now. I'll give you an example on critical race theory, right? We, we watched that get used in Virginia by Yunkin to drag folks to the right. So it's was a lot about economy, a lot about inflation. The last couple of weeks, we have the parents matter. So intentionally using a grievance-based frame and a, a racial resentment frame, um, and then CRT starts to drag folks to the right. So we went into the lab and said, okay, well, who is, who doesn't know about this yet or does, isn't sure what they think, who's movable? And what we saw was they were really high in values around nostalgia, around patriotism, around in-group care. And so I crafted a story, a true story about my grandfather um, flying in World War II. He was a bomber in World War II, and he um, was shot down. And as his plane was all shot and one of his um, fellow servicemen died, um, the Tuskegee Airmen come up on his wing and they helped his plane land. When I was little, he used to tell me that story about how at that time it it was segregated and he was taught that folks were different, but these guys saved his life. And as a result of that, he really believed that we needed to be in a different place and we needed to treat everyone equally. And so I crafted this message that talked about my pop and like back then it was segregated, but look what the Tuskegee Airmen did. My know my pop today would want us to be talking about how racism still exists in school and how it shouldn't be like that and how we need to just like give people a fair shot kind of thing. That message moved white women 32 percentage points towards supporting teaching about
1: racism in schools. For how long I'm wondering,
0: so this is the first step, right? It's first, it's directional. Find out what's going to work in the lab. It's against a placebo. Then the next step is um, take that, the messages that worked really well and turn them into memes and GIFs and, and ads. Last cycle, we created, and these are on uh, the Galvanize Action website, we created all this same kind of research and we gave it out to PACs and to C4s the one for all committee created four ads that worked exceptionally well it moved white women 7 to 9 percentage points where those ads were played we really reversed the trend of what was happening in america so White women went for Trump and even graders in 2020, but not where we worked. In Michigan and Wisconsin, we reversed that trend. In Wisconsin, we saw an 11 percentage point shift among white non college women towards Biden, right? And so, and obviously, we're not the only reason. Part of it is like really understanding folks, connecting with them where they are in a way they can hear it with these kinds of messaging. Now, they're constantly being uh, barraged by other messaging, right? So part of that is going to be stickiness over time. And so that's the next step for us is like in the field, testing it in the field, and then looking at stickiness. Persuasion ads in general aren't that effective or sticky, and that's why folks use them at the very end. And what we're doing is figuring out how in Galvanized Action, our ads are softening the ground for candidates, Right now, we're working to inoculate against things like critical race theory. It is not about a particular race or candidate. It's about what are these issues that are coming up that are grievance-based, that are dividing us, that are pulling folks away from what they say they care most about. They say they care most about gas in the car to get to work to feed their kids, but they're being triggered intentionally by the right using fear-based politics. Um, and trying to say like, this is scary. Your kids are being taught something which they're not being taught, right? And they're uh, creating chaos and lack of control. And what we know from neuropsych is when you create chaos and a lack of control, especially our audience wants order and safety, and they will look towards a strong man to give it to them. Even if Trump was creating that chaos and, and lack of control and fear of immigrants, folks are looking for safety. And that's textbook authoritarian uh, playbook, right? I like that's that's throughout history. So he just used it very well and we're still seeing it today. That's why looking at things like immigration, at CRT, at socialism, what is being put out there to scare us and divide us? How do we connect with that audience who's being targeted and who is by definition persuadable on either side? We do the work now to inoculate against that, basically shut out that noise and get them to focus on what they think mean to focus on, what they care most about. And that's the kind of the beauty of the work that we're doing now. we're doing it in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio right now. And then as we move through the year, we're doing the research in the Southeast and the Southwest so that if folks want us to come in, that we have the ability of offering them that research, those materials.
1: When you look around at the other messaging coming out of the left, out of progressives, out of the Democratic Party, I'm assuming you have some strong opinions about how that's being done. What do you see that makes sense and what do you see that doesn't?
0: I would say the mistake that I see some of us making is that, um, continued desire to fact battle or persuade with facts. And the neuroscience tells us really clearly that most of us, including us, right, don't make decisions consciously or based on facts. Most of the things that we do are done subconsciously. That's increasingly true in a world where there's just a barrage of information. Our brains cannot possibly take in all the information we're getting. So the brains create shortcuts and then we rely on things like social proof, right? There are certain things that we know how people end up making their decision and that once they make their decision, then they go looking for, you know, information that is going to confirm it, the confirmation bias. So what I see still too often is an attempt to meet people at, uh, to persuade people with facts. I find that to be disappointing and I see that the right is not falling into that trap, right? The right is targeting values and emotion, um, they're also definitely targeting fear, which is dangerous for us, but we can counter it by connecting with their emotion, but offering them hope, and which is what Obama did so well.
1: Do you see someone out there in the party or in the ecosystem who you think is doing a good job communicating in the way that you're finding is helpful?
0: Most of my time is spent with folks like Grow Progress who are creating the systems for others to do it. I definitely am not um, taking this position like, oh, we're the only ones or we're the best by no means. We've been so lucky to learn from so many other folks. So my pause is not meant to suggest that. I'm trying to think about who I feel like does it well. I think folks do it with their own audience well, right? Like, so I think Moms Rising does a very good job with their audience. They know who they are, how they, um, what they care about, and they connect with them. I think it's just for this audience, it's a little bit harder. And what I mostly see is is the right doing a better job with them.
1: Ugh, I hate hearing that, but I keep hearing it over and over. I did talk to the founders of Grow Progress a long time ago, and, and they were... Quite interesting. Maybe I should catch back up with them. Is there a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had?
0: To me, the the biggest threat that we're facing right now is this toxic polarization, how it's being used to divide us. Um, and I, I know, and one of the reasons I was so happy to come onto this podcast is you really are. Um, doing such a good job of drawing f- folks' attention to the threat that we have with our democracy now, how fragile it is, and how we really need to be stepping into taking action. I think the the hope we can offer is if you connect with folks as they see themselves and as they want to be seen and really put the time and effort into it, um, you can just stand with them as they, Exercise that more, right? So, like, I I see that happening every day in such a dark time. Our our work is super hopeful, both on the um, Galvanized USA, because we are inoculating against that polarization. We are getting folks to see each other, and I think one of the biggest risks we have now is uh, a combination of how many Republicans think that this election, the twenty twenty, wasn't valid. The majority of Republicans do not believe that Biden was. Um, fairly elected. So if you're them, you think I have to save democracy. It was stolen from us. And the majority of Republicans honestly believe that. And then you ask folks who is willing to use violence to protect democracy. And we've got a third of Trump voters saying, I think violence is necessary to protect democracy and our American way of life. Right. And and another 20% of Democrats. So we've got a fifth of Americans saying, I think violence may be necessary to protect democracy from very different points of view about what's what's going on in the world, but very willing to use violence against their neighbor, right? And if you are a student of history and sort of like the global end of democracies, I think one of the best books I've read recently is How Democracies Die. Such a good look at, the, at globally, right? And we can... What you can see is the recipe is there for serious trouble. And a big part of that is seeing each other as the enemy and being willing to use violence against each other and get rid of all the rules at any cost. And so I think the hope is we know that we know better and we know how we can do it. So how do we stand up all of us um, and say, like, let's let's reclaim America. Let's do it together and let's, let's not participate in the, the dehumanizing of the other folks who are have a different political view. Um, because if we participate in that, we are going to hasten the road towards the end of democracy. We're developing a path to do it about how to connect with folks, how to move them. Not everybody, right? Some folks are not interested. They actually don't share a vision for this America. They are incredibly racist and anti-Semitic. I'm not talking about those folks. But most people are just trying to live their life. And these folks that we're targeting, it is not their intention to destroy America or hurt others. What we need to do is connect with them to make sure that the way that they're voting, their civic impact is actually realizing the the shared vision they have. And I think we can do it.
1: If I have a fear, it's that destruction is so much easier than construction. It's so much easier to knock a house down than build it. And I think it's almost demonstrated by your work. It's hand-to-hand connection. It's a lot of effort to move people in this direction. It's so easy for Trump to tweet something out or someone aligned with him that is destructive and polarizing and divisive. What gives you hope in a time where so many forces are so incentivized and interested in dividing us. And it takes so much effort to bring us together.
0: The hope is in um, what we're seeing every day. Like, our volunteers love the work that they're doing with us. The deep canvassing calls that we make where we connect with voters, like, our volunteers love it because it, it, it takes away what we, especially progressive folks on the, um, you know, um, in our urban enclaves that are super diverse and progressive, like, Talking with these voters, it takes away some of the um, stories we've been telling ourselves about who they are. And it really is a way of saying like, what is going on for you? And as we start to see each other, And understand each other. We do see each other's humanity, and we can see that there is a path forward. And what we need to do is connect with these folks before it's too late, right? And that they're being so cleverly targeted by the extreme right. And so I would say one thing is, you know, put in the work, do it now, but also invest in the kind of work that we're doing, that Grow Progress is doing, that the MindBridge Center is doing, where we are taking every bit of the science and research that exists and using it to our advantage so we can compete. And not only compete, I mean, we're having some blockbuster hits, but that takes investment now. You know, That's one of the things that drives me nuts is how all the money comes right before the election. But I had to do the research on what were the right-wing narratives that folks were seeing and believing that would be threats, and to do the deep canvassing last spring, to know what really we were up against so I could create the message so so I can do it. So it's got to be year-round, day-to-day investment in the research. And our approach is, I'll say this is the other thing that gives me hope, it's like, we believe in scaling by sharing. We, um, we want to, to create this America, we want to save this democracy. We are not competing with other folks in the field. When we learn something, we share it. If we're having a, um, a briefing on all this research that we've done and all these effective messages that we've created in February. And then in June, we're putting out a playbook for allies in the field to use to say, see how we did this, deconstruct this message. If you know that this is their value, connect this way, right? And so, and I think that we're doing that. And the more that we can do that and connect together and realize this is not a time for competition. It's not a time for, you know, one-up and chip. This is a time to pull together and say like, what is the best of the best? How do we riff off each other? How do we fail fast and learn? But really, you know, We work with our heads, all the science, but you have to move forward with your heart. And folks need to know you see them and they are part of the America you're building. Once they feel seen, right, then you can move together. And that is a big part of the work that we have to do going forward.
1: It's just really good to hear that it might be working. Is there anything else you want to say?
0: I want to say it is working. I want you to go look at Galvanize Actions website. Look at the four ads and you can see how different they are. They really do. It's under the research page. But, the, you know, I think that's the last thing. It, I, I know that it's working because we measure everything. That's one of the things folks like about us. We're not just guessing and we're not putting our own ideas out there. It's research. It's science. It's measurement. So you can have faith. It is working <laughs> and it's a part of the solution. So. 100% go support your folks doing um, dedicated work with voters of color. And then just remember that this is an integral part of the solution too.
1: Thanks much. That was Jackie Payne. Jackie is at galvanizedusa.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.